0: looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we've done quite a bit of delving into the the historical detail, and I hope a map is going to come up, because when we look at Nehemiah, um, he was a Jew. He lived in around the 5th century BC, and about 150 years before Nehemiah was born, um, Jerusalem was completely destroyed, completely left in ruins, and the Babylonians had invaded, and they had taken the Jewish people into exile, into captivity, and about 150 years after that, um, you've got this great big superpower, which is Persia, and this incredibly powerful king called Artaxerxes, and here is where we meet Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, we heard, is a a cupbearer. He serves King Artaxerxes, and he is filled with grief and distraught when he hears news uh, from a remnant of jewish people that have visited jerusalem who tell him how it's still in absolute ruins now this hurts him because the jewish nation they absolutely identify with the city of jerusalem it is a symbol of their faith And it is a symbol of their national identity. And it is in ruins. So for him, it's like their whole nation is still completely in ruins and a a heap of rubble. So Philip talked about how there are four stages to vision. The first stage is where you see what is. And you think, it is like this. This is a reality. Jerusalem is in ruins. And then the second stage is you, you, you think, well, it shouldn't be like this and you you hurt and you you grieve inside, it it shouldn't be. And then the first stage, the third stage is like, well, it it could be like this. This is what reality could be like. We start to dream, we start to envision a different future. And then the last stage is, it should be like this, and there's this driving force to bring about a vision that you feel so passionately about. And we see that, that Nehemiah, he prays, he prays and he asks for the favor of the king to let him take a a, a community of Jewish people back to Jerusalem to build up this wall. And as in prayer, he pushes through and and the king grants him his his wish. And so Nehemiah is as much about the power of prayer as it is about the power of the human force. And uh, we saw this this slogan, um, you need to pray, as if everything depends on God, but work as if everything depends on man when you want to see the things of the kingdom of God. And then Sam took us through to the next stage where we have the Jewish nation building this wall. And it's a monumental task. It's a a huge job. Jerusalem is a big city and the wall is around the extremities. And how do they go about this massive task? Well, it's about everyone getting involved. Everybody needed to take hold of a shovel. Everybody needed to capture the vision, and everybody needed to be on team. And they chunked up the, the work, this task, into small, um, little you know, achievable uh, goals. People were working in families. People were working as communities of professionals. But they began to build this wall, and they began to have success. And um, you might be asking, why are we talking about Nehemiah? Why are we talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem? How does that relate to us and how does it relate to our city? Because Bristol's not exactly a heap of rubbles. It's a very affluent city. It's a city on the rise. Everybody wants to live here, don't they? Yeah? yeah? <laughs> it's seen. You want to live here. Everybody wants to be in Bristol. It's voted one of the best cities in the UK to live. So. How do we relate this to, you know, the destruction and the ruin of Jerusalem? Well, actually, you only need to look beneath the veneer of our city to know that there is a lot of brokenness there. You know, we have... Uh, the, the, the state of our mental health for our young people has reached a national crisis. And we're all in this room. We're all affected by that. Some of us really battle daily with mental health. We battle with depression. We battle with anxiety. And some of us are supporting and caring for those who are in that struggle. So I think we all know that this is is where it is, this is the brokenness that we're dealing with. Do you know that Bristol is a drug addict? Bristol is the cocaine capital of Europe. And do you know how they know? They take samples of our sewage. (laughs) The lives of every Bristolian converge in our sewage system. Isn't that a great thought? So when you take a sample, it's a lovely clean image, isn't it, Matt? When you take a sample of our sewage, it says Bristol is addicted to cocaine. I don't want to be addicted to cocaine. This is my city. I want to be healthy. I want us to be whole. I don't want us to be under kind of um, life-debilitating conditions. So that really disturbs me. I feel really strongly about this addiction in our city. We have a gap between the rich and poor, which is widening every year. There's no greater sort of measure of social injustice than that, that gap between the rich and poor, and some of our poor really struggle. You know, under the poverty line. I'm in a school where kids don't eat. Um, but this is this is the nature. This is the brokenness of our city, and we've got lots of people who, you know, they pursue um, pleasure they pursue eroticism, they pursue chemical highs, because there's absolutely nothing else to give them meaning in their life. And this is a real shame. It's a real shame. And we can see there's a spiritual hunger in our city, but about 98% of our 20-year-olds have no connection with faith at all, none whatsoever. That's really sad. We need to do something about that. And Nehemiah, he was looking to build and restore a city to hope to faith, to relationship in God. And in a similar way, that's what we're doing. We want to build a city where people, their hopes and their dreams and their sense of identity is restored and their sense of connectivity with a God who loves them. We want to bring that to them. We want to build a city of of faith. So when we look at the story in Nehemiah and I'm looking at chapter four and here we have a nation that is looking to recover its identity in God. They're wanting to restore their holy city, their place, their centre of worship. And what we're going to look at today is the subject of opposition. What is opposition? Any of you ever experienced opposition? Put your hand up as a Christian if you've ever encountered any opposition because of your faith. Yeah, actually, that's a lot of hands. So we're going to be talking about opposition. What does it look like? Well, let's have a look at our scripture and see how it kind of manifests in this story. So our text says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, Nehemiah 4.1. The first type of opposition that we meet when we're doing the works of God, when we're building in God's way, God's work. The first type of op- opposition that we're likely to meet is anger. And it seems like a disproportionate anger when you think about what it's in response to. Because here, Sam Ballard. He's a local ruler. He's not a bigwig. He's not like King Artaxerxes, who's this really mega, super powerful king, who's given permission to the Jews to build their city wall. He's a minor leader, and he's suddenly got problems. You could say, oh, well, he just doesn't like, you know, he doesn't like the, the, the change. There's a kind of movement, a difference in the status quo. You could say, well, it might be because he is going to be affected by the trade routes if somebody builds a wall right in the middle of his region. But actually, I think it's more than that. I think when people see communities or individuals wanting to rediscover their identity in God, there's always a bit of a reaction. There's a bit of a, it's like a spiritual reaction. And in Paul, uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's an enemy of God who wants to keep humanity in captive to his design. He's tried to pervert their identity, pervert their course, pervert their destiny. And when you have a group of people who want to recover their destiny in God, that upsets a spiritual power. That upsets the enemy. And he will act and he will move, if you like, he will fan a reaction in human beings. And I don't think our our battle is not with other people. It's not with our neighbors. Jesus always made it clear that we are to love our human enemies. We must never take offense to how they treat us. He says, love those who persecute you. Do good to those who mistreat you. We must love our neighbors. And if opposition comes through a human being, we need to look beyond to the cosmic kind of stage. We are dealing with God and God's enemies. Now when I was a, a young Christian, I encountered a significant level of anger when I decided to become a Christian. Can anybody relate to that? Did you come out and say, I've decided to become a Christian, and then you just got this incredible like, backlash of angry people? Anybody relate to that? I don't know if you do, but I was, I was 20. My family were not happy at all, they were very angry in the face of me finding faith. I was disinherited by a grandmother, I lost every single friend but one, and I just seemed to upset everybody that I told about my newfound faith. I've just found it really strange. I thought, surely this is a good thing. You know, it's all flowers and love hearts, and you know, why are people so offended with me being a Christian? And I think it's just this spiritual dynamic going on. People were, they didn't know what what kind of forces were at work in them, but there was this kind of disproportionate level of anger that I seemed to encounter when I said, I've decided to become a Christian. So that is the first type of opposition, number one. You just get this anger. This kind of disproportionate, angry response is a bit like gaslighting. You know, I'm going to be angry, and it's going to make you step back and and decide or or reconsider what you've chosen to do. I'm going to stop you from moving forward in this, this anger. So that's the first one. And let's look at the passage and look for the second one, because I think this is the most interesting. It says that Sambalat he ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said what are these Jews, oh no, sorry, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burnt as they are? So number two, the second type of opposition that Christians receive is mockery mockery. They try and make you feel a fool because you believe in God. And here, Sam Ballot is saying, you're a bunch of idiots. You're weak. That's why you're looking to kind of rebuild your wall and and rediscover your identity. You're weak. You're feeble. You're trying to do something which is impossible. Those stones are ruined. They've They've been exposed to such high temperatures. They'll never be useful to build a wall. What you're doing is utterly futile. You're a bunch of idiots. When I became a Christian... I was made to feel like a complete idiot. <laughs> I just kept hearing references to socks and sandals and tambourines. Oh, are you going to start wearing socks and sandals? Are you going to start bashing your tambourine and singing hallelujah? And I just I got this over and over again from kind of different sources and do you know, honestly, I was baffled. I had no idea what they were talking about until I met Dave Mitchell. <laughs> And they were, they were thinking about the hippies, you know, the Christian hippies, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. I hadn't heard of the Jesus movement. Everyone that I met in church wore a suit and a tie. You know, we were quite slick in the 90s. But, you know, the, the hippie movement was the 70s. Actually, there were still hippies in Bristol because I was in Surrey. There were no hippies in Surrey, but when I moved to Bristol, there were hippies everywhere. So, Christian hippies that didn't wear, they didn't wear sandals, they wore no shoes whatsoever. But I just got a lot of this kind of like really patronising, really kind of ridiculing mockery. You know, people treated me like I was intellectually subnormal. So I had people say, Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, sorry for you. You believe that the world was made in seven days. Oh, sorry for you. Oh... You, um, you don't believe in the Big Bang, then, even though it's been proved, because you're a Christian and you don't believe in science. That's a big thing, isn't it? Oh, you don't believe in science because you're a Christian. And then, you know, they would say, oh, and you can't think for yourself. You have to have someone else think for you. You can't make decisions. Someone who's wearing socks and sandals and bashes a tambourine <laughs> is making your decisions. And I literally was treated like I was the biggest idiot, you know a woman with absolutely no brain whatsoever. I mean, I'm not a stellarly intellectual woman, not like Sam Cooke. He's not a woman, he's a man. <laughs> or maybe... or maybe he is a woman. He does all the things that women do really well. He does them. I, I don't know how he does that. I may not be stellarly intellectual, but I'm not stupid. I don't think I am. You've all gone silent. I could be wrong here. but. I think that, you know, I've got a certain level of intellect. It's not because I'm, a, I'm, I'm stupid and I'm an idiot that I believe in Jesus. I think it makes per- perfect kind of intellectual sense. So, so you've got your first type of opposition is anger. You've got your second kind of type of opposition is mockery, ridicule, humiliation. And then the third type of opposition is aggression. It's when that anger turns into some kind of intimidating action. And we see it in the text, it says, but when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. It's just like it's a display of strength. Suddenly, the people of Jerusalem look like they're beginning to accomplish what they set out to do. And these, these guys get really angry and they get really aggressive. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. This is real aggression. And I think this is like, this is spiritual as well. This is from the enemy. He's stirring up the surrounding people, the surrounding armies to be really aggressive, to be threatening and intimidating because he doesn't want these people who want to establish themselves their identity in God, he doesn't, or they don't want him to succeed. Now, I've experienced this level of aggression too, and I know it's not unique. You know, around the world, there's intense persecution against Christians. You might be afraid for your very life if you profess that you're a Christian, but we do experience it in little smaller measures in in our country, in Bristol, um, in, in Britain. And when I was about... When I was about 21, I got my first job in, it was in a computer software company, and I worked in the Guildford Surrey Surrey Research Park, and... um I wanted to be there to be a light and a witness for Jesus. I was completely kind of an over-the-top over sort of like Christian fanatic. I, I do sort of confess I was a bit over the top, but I just, I just thought I'm here for Jesus. I want everyone to know that I'm a Christian and that I love God and he loves them and, you know, we're going to... I want to build the kingdom in my office space. And I worked in one of these kind of open plan offices so um, everybody could hear your conversations, you know, everybody knew everyone's business. And within a few months, it was all fine at the beginning, and then A few months into my job, my boss decided that he really didn't like me, and he decided to become really aggressive And intimidating and he would come into the office and he would just shout and bellow and he would look for things that i hadn't done wrong but he would look to blame me for the most inconsequential thing and he'd be roaring and shouting and screaming and i was thinking my goodness me what has happened to this man and it got so bad that all the people in my office used to say kate we don't know why you stay why do you tolerate that And um, I'm actually quite a hardy bird. I know I look a little bit fragile. And people often think I'm quite easy to sort of push over. But I'm actually made of quite a lot of kind of steeliness. And I thought, I'm not going to let him win. I'm not going (laughs) to let him be aggressive and intimidate me. So I was reading my Bible every day. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to do what Jesus says. So it says, love your enemies. Do good to them. You know, bless those that persecute. And I thought, I am going to launch a campaign of love and service against this man. And I'm going to do what the Bible says, you know, in loving him so fully and passionately, I will be heaping hot coals on his head. He'll feel so ashamed at the way he treats me. And then I will be victorious and I will have won. So I I started my campaign. And it it reached a kind of, it culminated in this one day where it was really at the top. Now, I, I was his PA, but... I didn't have to buy him lunch. I didn't have to buy him his favourite BLT sandwich. Do you know, I was thinking about this story and I thought, my goodness, I can remember so much about this man. I was only with him a year. I can remember his birth date, because it had 666 in it, I thought, what's oh, the number of the beast? <laughs> he was born in June 66, I thought, I'm definitely taking this man on. <laughs> Size eight feet, had very small feet. It was and he was a, a kind of a large... And I even remember his sort code from his bank, which is a bit worrying, isn't it? So this man, his name was Gary. I, I do remember lots of information about you. But anyway, so I went out on a single day and I bought him a BLT sandwich, his favourite, bacon, lettuce, tomato, and orange juice, apple. He always liked that at lunchtime. So I went out, I bought him lunch and then I knew he had to pick up his suit from the dry cleaner so I, I took the token off his desk, he was out all morning and I picked up his suit for him and then I saw that he had some checks to pay him, so I picked up his paying in book and I, I took all his checks to the bank and so in my lunch break, which was just an hour, I managed to do all those things and I came back huffing and puffing, covered in sweat and I thought, right, this is it, he's just not going to be able to resist my kindness, my goodness, this is, this is going to be it. So I was feeling quite smug, I was thinking, yes <laughs> Kate, you've, you're going to Really, like, you're going to shame this man. He's going to feel so bad that he's so mean to you. So he walked into the office. He sat down. He saw his sandwich. And he said to everyone in the office, he said, who bought me my sandwich? And everyone sort of piped up. And we're all they're all watching me I'm watching him. But they they all said, oh, Kate bought you your sandwich. I thought, well, he'll probably just say thank you. But he didn't. He just sat at his desk and he, he sort of, <laughs> he growled, <laughs> ate his sandwich. Nothing nice, just a growl. I can't do a growl because it's something I never do. You know what <laughs> I am trying to sort of you know, impersonate a man that I can't possibly impersonate because I'm not aggressive like he is. But anyway, he was growling away. And then he finished his sandwich and he turned around and he saw his suit and he said, oh, who, who picked up my suit? And all the office went, Kate picked up your suit. And he swivelled back and he... <laughs> growling. Nothing. And then he noticed that the, the paying-in book was on his left and the cheques had all been paid and he said, Who paid all my checks in? And he was waiting in horror to hear the reply. And everybody in the office went, Kate did that. And I thought, oh, this is so great, he's feeling so bad, he's so rude to me. What's he going to do next? And he got up to come and speak to me, and I thought he was going to say, you know what, you're a really kind person, I'm so sorry that I'm so mean to you, but let's just start again. So he came up to my office and I was expecting something quite nice and polite, but it wasn't. He was right in my face, like an inch from my face, shouting, roaring, screaming at me, and I thought, how can he possibly do this? And everyone in the office was watching. And I, I've got to say, I confess, I was feeling a little bit scared. <laughs> I sort of sunk back a bit, and his face, as I went back, you know, when you sort of go back like this, his face came forward, and I thought, how is he reaching so far over? And I was like this, and I, I started to shake a little bit, and I thought, no, Kate, come on, you're better than this. And then I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray. So I was looking at him, straight in his eyes, and I just thought, Holy Spirit, under my brother, went, Holy Spirit, help me, help me, do something. And it was as if, someone had turned a tap on over my head, and I just felt like love and power just pouring over me. I'm not making this up. The Holy Spirit is my witness. He's in the room. You were there. Thank you very much for doing that for me. But he just like, whoo, just the Holy Spirit. And I just felt like this welling up of love and compassion and kindness for my boss, who was still shouting at me. And for a moment, I felt like, do you ever zone out? I just thought... I'm going into panic mode, and I, and I just zoned out for a minute, and then I remembered that he was still in front of me, and I kind of zoned back in and looked at him. But he'd stopped screaming at me, and his face was an inch from mine still, but he just looked like this. He went... <laughs> and I was feeling so full of love, I was looking like this. <laughs> and everybody in the room, everyone was looking at us thinking, what is what's going on? And after that episode, he never, ever bullied me or was aggressive ever again. It stopped, and I was thinking, I've won. (laughs) But then he sacked me two months later, and that was the end of the story. He'd had enough of me. So I'm going to recap. This is for Wan Ling. (laughs) One, anger is the first line of opposition. Two, it's mockery. And three, it's aggression. And if, if the enemy cannot... If he can't stop you in your tracks at those three levels, he will try something even more nasty and mean. He will slip in under the radar in ways that you can't really see or perceive. You've just got to be alert and you've got to be vigilant because they will be internal ways that he will come under the radar, get inside your camp, get inside your heart, get inside your head, and he will try and use these three methods to oppose you in your faith. And these methods are illustrated in the text. The Bible says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of our laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. This is the people of Judah. They have been building, and at this point in the story, they have built the wall to half its level. And you know when you're doing a project, there's lots of energy at the beginning, it's exciting, and when you're near the end, you think, yeah, nearly at the end, but it's that little bit in the middle that you're incredibly vulnerable. You just feel like, actually... Can I keep going? And they had given it everything. They had poured their life and soul into building the wall to half its height. And they were feeling like we haven't got anything left. That's it. And this was the point where Nehemiah just strengthened them and spoken and said, we've got to give it a bit more. And I know as Christians, we can get to that point. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've been doing hours and hours of like volunteering and social action, hours pouring into church, and there are moments where that little thought comes into my head, like this is not doing anything. It's completely ineffectual. You're not making any difference in your world. You might as well just stop. And that really gets into my head, and it's discouragement. It's discouragement from the enemy. He's trying to stop me from within. He's trying to make me lose heart, to get rid of my courage, to get rid of my strength. So that is one That's one of the ways that he gets in and and, and opposes you, but from the inside. And the second is this. It says, Also our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we we will kill them and put an end to their work. This is fear. This is the second internal kind of insipid, under the radar means of opposition that the enemy will come at you. And I know that fear is a big thing and I want to kind of stay on this for a little while because there's a lot of us who experience fear in our lives. We talked about anxiety and depression. But there's other types of fear that just niggle away. You know, especially if you make a decision to become a Christian. First of all, there's a fear of what other people will, will do or say. Will I get rejected? Sometimes there's a fear if you make a decision you know, for God, to live your life for God. Is that like a, a, a like have I just completely ruined my child of any decent and and fulfilling career. You know, for some women, becoming a Christian limits their kind of their options regarding a man. (laughs) They're like, oh, suddenly there's like there's two men. Well in my case it was like one man for 30 women you're thinking you're panicking because you're thinking will any of us get married there's just the one so it can be a fear for women I've talked about this before haven't I but there's a fear that you might not you'd be limiting your options you might not do as well if you choose to follow God and then there are other types of fear and this is a really this is a really serious one because there's one actually that Philip and I have both experienced there's this word that goes in and you can see in this text the fear is that is death, and, and they're fearing in their heads, they're hearing this narrative that Sam Ballot and his armies, you know, everywhere you turn, we're going to kill you, and we can often get fed this narrative of death, and I know Philip, when he was a little lad, he just, he had this narrative going on in his head, and a prophet, when he was in his teens, a prophet spoke over him and said, you're going to die an old man, and that completely broke it, And when I became a Christian, basically, I was nursing my mum. She died very young. And ever since her death, I've had this narrative, this voice going in my head. And I've heard loads of people confess the same story, you know, I fear. That my life is going to be short and that is not from God that is from the enemy it's not from you either it's a demonic it's a lie and it's fear that's being fed into you and I want you to know that if you're that person and you get that narrative fed to you this is what you say you just say you don't get to decide you don't get to determine your vision for my life I do not agree with that and I say no And God says in the Bible, he says, with a long life will I satisfy you. So you just say over over yourself, God has said, with a long life will he satisfy me. The enemy does not get to determine our our life. He does not get to determine when we die. Actually, that is totally God's realm. You read it all over the scripture. That is God's department. He doesn't get to speak, and he is not allowed to speak those words into our minds. So fear is another way that the enemy just sneaks in and, and disturbs your vision. He disturbs your means of operating, and you know he can really cripple you with that kind of lie. So there's one, the first internal a uh, type of opposition we get is discouragement. The second one is fear. And the third one is this. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. This is... Our third one, which is negativity, it's like predicting the worst possible outcomes and and projecting a really negative future. And they didn't stop. They kept saying it, so they said it 10 times over. And sometimes we can be a bit like that in church. We can speak really negative things over the church, over one another, and we can sort of collude with each other with this negativity. And we need to be aware that this is a strategy of the enemy to oppose us and stop us in our tracks. So the question you're asking me now is, what do we do in the face of opposition? And we can look at Nehemiah, because what he does is really, really interesting. How does he confront all of these different types of opposition that are hurtling towards him? And the Bible says this. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. This is not what you expect, is it because you 've got these builders they 've done half the wall the the, the the people of of israel they are they 're still in this kind of this situation where the enemy is camped around them and being very threatening and being very aggressive and they're halfway to building and finishing the wall. But what do they do? You could either say, like, drop your weapons and just dig as hard as you can and keep building, keep building, and eventually the wall will be secure and we'll be safe. Or you could say, OK, let's drop your... your um, um, spades and shovels, and just pick up the sword. Let's go and fight these guys. Let's kill them. But you don't do both. It feels like you're all sort of compromising the success of your mission. But this is what Nehemiah instructs people to do. At the beginning, it's like, well, half of you are going to dig. Half of you are going to be with your arrows, with your swords and shields. And then he said, actually, forget that. Put the the sword in one hand and then put your shovel in the other. Just do both. And this is a really good principle for us because it yokes again that thing about prayer and pray as if everything depends on God but work as if everything depends on you. There's this kind of image that sword and warfare and just labouring and pushing through and just putting your sweat and all into something, they're, they're meant to be yoked together. And it's interesting, some churches are really good at at kind of doing the whole spiritual warfare and prayer and, you know, worship and they just neglect the kind of the, the works, the shovel, which is like social action, getting your hands dirty. And then other churches are really good at doing the kind of practical, and they neglect doing the, the kind of the more spiritual. And the, way, the reason I call it spiritual is because always the sword in the Bible represents spirit. It calls, you know, it calls the sword the sword of the spirit. And it's the word of God. It's actually the active power of God And they are to use and hold and wield the sword while they're using the shovel. And I just want to go back to my story with Gary, my boss, and say, I I want to show you where the sword and the shovel was demonstrated because I was a very young Christian. I, I didn't know this about the sword and the shovel. But when I went into that office and I wanted to bring the kingdom, I wanted to witness, I wanted to share God's love. I wanted to serve with all of my heart. That was me bringing in the shovel because God can't do that. Only I can do that. The shovel represents you know, the might of man. Only I can witness God to people. Only I can bring the love and service of God to people. That was me bringing in my shovel. And when you Bring in your shovel and you, you you kind of you work and you dig and you do the things the the acts that only the humans can do, but they reveal God. You get this opposition. You really do. And I've always kind of walked into these very um, fraught scenarios of conflict because I'm a real shovel wielder. I love going in and and, and digging and and upsetting the apple cart. I didn't realise I was like this, but I do. But when you do, when you bring the kingdom, when you share your identity in Christ, when you say to the, the heavenly realms, I am choosing to return to God and identify as one of God's own, you create A problem for the enemy, he doesn't like it. So, when you're digging your shovel and you are making a problem for the enemy, but you're also pushing that human being who's being confronted with this message, you're pushing him towards the spiritual conflict. He doesn't even know why he's angry, he doesn't even know why he's aggressive. I'm absolutely sure that if I asked Gary why were you being so aggressive, he would have no idea because there are spiritual forces that were affecting and influencing him. But what he did know is that I was pushing him towards a, a reality. I was pushing him towards a spiritual reality because I was telling him about God. And it made him uncomfortable and it ruffled his feathers. But when I made him uncomfortable, when I set him up and pushed him towards the direction of God, If I didn't have the sword with me, I would have failed miserably because he would have just been aggressive, attacked me, won. But because I had that moment where I just grabbed hold of the sword and said, right, I'm gonna pray now. He didn't know this, but I was praying and I was taking authority in the spirit and I was asking and inviting the spirit of God to come and sort out this cosmic mess that was going on above me. I believe that the spirit came and just sorted out the demonic realm that was influencing this poor man, and that's why he looked so baffled. He had no idea what was going on. But you see, the shovel was working there because it was digging, it was bringing in the works that only I could bring into his life to reveal God. But the sword was there doing the spiritual warfare taking God's authority and bringing the power of the Holy Spirit into that situation. That's why it's effective. I don't know if Gary ever had another encounter with a Christian in his life, but I'm not ashamed that that happened. I look back and I'm thinking, it was quite funny. It was a bit comical. And when we do warfare, it's incredible how there is a joy that comes. It's totally ridiculous that you just get people so mad. And, you know, you get these outrageous situations. And I've got so many stories and anecdotes to tell you in days to come about things that have happened to me when I've, you know, shared. I I think my social skills are a bit poor sometimes. I just go in there and I say things that really affect people. I know with my family, I've really offended them over the years. You know, I've got a sister... a year ago, she wouldn't speak to me because I went in, I wanted to confront a stronghold, a spiritual stronghold in in our family. And I just went in for the kill. And she was so, her, her feathers were so ruffled, she couldn't speak to me for a year. But I know that when I push my family, when I push at them with the realities of the kingdom, I'm pushing them in a place where they can encounter God. They get to sense and feel the spiritual conflict, and I want to push them into that place. You know, we've got all these, you know, 98% of people in their 20s are completely unaware of the spiritual conflict. Unless we get our swords and dig and do the works that only we can do in sharing our faith, they're not going to know the spiritualities. We're not going to ruffle their feathers. But when we put them in that place and then we call on the Holy Spirit, we give them an opportunity to know God. And what you've got to realize when you're the person creating this conflict, your salvation's not at stake. You are saved. You are, you're in in eternity. That's not the problem. That's not what's at stake here. What's at stake is their soul, their eternity. So in this story, Nehemiah and the people of God, they had secured their salvation. They had decided they'd repented before God and brought themselves back into God's kingdom and said, we're going to establish ourselves as a nation under God. They'd made that decision, but they were upsetting the surrounding nations who hadn't made that decision. And so they were forcing a spiritual reality. They were forcing them into conflict because what was at stake was their souls, their eternity, their eternity. And that's what we need to be brave to do. We need to push people into a place where they experience the conflict and they experience the reality in the presence of God. So this is where we sort of tie into the you need to be working as if it depends on you. There are things that only I can do, only I can bring into my workplace. But we pray like everything depends on God. We've got to be aware there's a spiritual reality. There are spiritual powers. And we need to be wielding these spiritual weapons. Now, what does this mean in practice? Well, this is what I think that the sword really represents. And this is how we're to grow and we're to uh, develop ourselves in order to be sword wielders. Because I don't think just anybody can pick up the sword and use it well. And I say that with, with all seriousness. I think that it's a bit like the Romans when they trained for the Roman army. They, they needed to train for years before they were ready to actually use the sword. And we need to be in training. So to use the sword, we need to be training. We need to train ourselves in prayer. Prayer makes you know that God is in control and everything depends on him. We need to immerse ourselves in scripture. We need to know the truth. We need to kind of align our minds right to see what reality is actually like. If we're in the scripture, and some of us are reading that scripture you know, every day, uh, the Psalms and the uh, New Testament fear, we need to get the scripture in our head so that we understand the realities that we're dealing with. We need to worship. We need to worship because worship is where we, we actually see God right When we're worshipping him, we're giving him worth. And that worship actually gives worth to our journey with him and our identity with him. And Matt is going to be talking about worship and Nehemiah and how he calls the people of God back to worship. And this is part of their whole restoration, part of the restoration of their identity, restoration of their, their nation and their health, the call to worship. And holiness... We need to work on ourselves. Do you know that God will not defend the things that that mar his image? God will not defend a corrupted nation. The whole reason that Jerusalem fell and became rubble was because the Jews... They just abandoned God and they became corrupted. They became unholy. And then when the armies came in, God didn't defend them. And they knew he wouldn't defend them. They they knew that it was judgment upon them. If we don't cultivate holiness in our walk and our lives with God, we cannot wield the sword. God will not defend us. If we are ungodly and we are corrupted, we cannot ask for the Holy Spirit to come and defend us when we witness and we do the works. We need to work on holiness. What does a shovel represent? Well, shovels represent the building of the community, the things only we can do. We need to be getting into hubs because that's where we build community. That's where we disciple one another and rub off the sharp edges and and teach each other how to walk in, in obedience. We need to be serving We need to be doing work, like serving in church or serving in our community. But Jesus talks about himself as being, he said, I I, I came not to serve, but uh, came not to be served, but to serve. Our whole mission here is service. We need to be serving. So we need to be serving in church, serving wherever we can. Social action is so important. Building the kingdom is about taking the brokenness holding it and finding ways to bring that healing and bring that restoration. And we need to be witnessing. I showed you with my example with Gary. Witnessing is building the kingdom. There's no point winning spiritual battles if you don't build on the territory that you've gained. So you need to be witnessing and building community. Okay, the great news at the end of this story, which needs to be celebrated, is that after all this opposition, after all this attack from the enemy, the, the wall was completed in 52 days. That was incredible. I mean, it's a massive, massive wall. And they were building with instruments and and they were building with bricks that were were damaged, but they built this wall in just 52 days, in spite of all the opposition, in in spite of all the humiliation, in spite of all the discouragement and the fear, they completed the wall. And it was an incredible victory on their part. Okay, so I'm going to end with this, which is my big idea. My big idea is we overcome opposition by taking up both the sword and the shovel. We pray as if it all depends on God, and we work as if it all depends on us. I'll say that one more time. We overcome opposition by taking up both sword and the shovel. We pray as if it all depends on God, and we work as if it all depends on us. So I'm just going to close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he is the sword that we wield. Lord, thank you that you give us the shovel because, Lord, there is a work that we do and there's a part that we play in building your kingdom. And thank you that the shovel represents our part. And thank you, God, that the sword represents your part. And we work in partnership with you. Father God, give us strength in the face of all opposition to do your works And Lord, remind us of how we wield that sword. Remind us, Lord, how we work that shovel and let us be committed to building your kingdom here in Bristol. In Jesus' name, amen.